Well, good morning again. I, uh, right now, as we are in this room, there is probably what I would say organized chaos going on in the community space. We have Candy Palooza going on. Uh, Candy Palooza. And uh, there's a group of kids and a group of workers out there. Um, well, candying up your kids. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> there's so many times, there's a lot of little kids in this church, which is really, really amazing. And Shelly and I, every once in a while, look at each other and we're like, man, we are so glad we're done. Um, so if after this is over today, you have the opportunity just to kind of love on some of those workers as they leave today, I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, somebody asked me this morning, Rich, what did you come dressed up as today on Halloween? And I made a joke. Um, and so I do need to share my pastor appreciation gift with this person uh, to make up for my joke. But I'm dressed as Zach Rudd when he's 60. How's that? If you don't know who Zach is, that was the guy leading worship right here. So, Zach, this is what you have to look forward to. And I'm not 60. So, but then uh, the reality is it kind of looks like I may be dressing up to try to be a golfer. Okay. And uh, I'm not one. So we'll talk about the hair here in just a minute. So I'll get to this golf club in just a moment. But what I want to do for you is I want to read for you a passage of scripture that's dear to me. It's Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, this will be familiar to some of you, maybe not others, but uh, the words will be on the screen and I want to read this for you. It's a little lengthy, so, so hang with me here. It's the parable of the lost son of the prodigal son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out. I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him. It was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I, I sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The scripture goes on and says, the brother became angry. He refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. You have never disobeyed your, your orders at all. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened Catherine. And then there's this final exchange. My son, the father, said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate we had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and is found. Father, thank you for your word today, and I pray that you would speak to our hearts, help us to open our ears so we might hear the word of God that you have for us today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, last summer, not 2021, 2020, when I was still pastoring in Racine, Wisconsin, I had uh, several associates, but one of my associate pastors, Neil, 
Neil Peterson. He now pastors a church in Muncie, Indiana. And uh, Neil looked at me in the middle of summer of 2020 and thought, you know what Rich needs? In the middle of all of this COVID stuff, in the middle of all the racial strife that was coming down the pike, you know what Rich needs? He needs to learn how to play golf. Yeah. So, uh, other than putt-putt and a few forays at the driving range, I'd never been golfing in my entire life. In my entire life. To make matters worse and really kind of get me on the hook, his wife bought him a new set of golf clubs for Father's Day, and he gave me his old set. So now, I was kind of obligated to go golfing, right? And so in Racine, Wisconsin, there's a golf course, Washington Park Golf Course. It's right smack dab in the center of the city. There's really, um, there's no, uh, well, there's no pretty way to put it. It is a super cheap golf course. So it became very good for me to start on. Uh, It's very waterlogged. They don't mow everything very well. This sounds really horrible, like I'm talking smack, but that's just the reality of it. So, hey, we're just going to kind of break you in slow. So that's what happens. So Neil and I, we show up at the golf course. I get all the golf clubs out. I've got the bag. I've got a glove, okay? Uh, I've got all these different colored balls. I mean, I just, I felt like I was really set up. But then it happened. We were walking down to the first tee, and it happened. I'm looking around, and I'm taking everything in, and I'm realizing, wow. Everybody here is really old. (laughs) And then I thought, I got this. I got this. I've been hitting the ball with a stick my whole life. I got this. I I can do this. And so sure enough, you know, we stroll up. It's our opportunity. So we're standing up there at the first tee and and he says, Rich, why don't you go first? I'm like, okay, man, I appreciate that. So I dropped the ball, didn't, I put it on the tee, but I, I put the thing down and I, I grabbed that driver. And again, I'm thinking, I got this. I got this. And so I teed up and I mean, I cranked that ball. And sure enough, it went straight down the fairway. Didn't hook, didn't curve, nothing. Great elevation, that thing took off and Neil was like, whoa, I'm impressed. And I said, humbly, I am too. I am too. I got this. I got this. So we walked down the fairway, okay? That's what it's called, right? I think, a fairway. (laughs) We walked down the fairway, and I, I go to my ball, and Neil says, all right, because I don't know what I'm doing. He says, you need to use your seven iron, your seven iron. So... I dig through my bag of all these nice little poles, and I pull out a seven. I pull out the seven. Okay, so here's the ball. Here's the ball. And again, I'm thinking, not even as far as it was back there. I've got this. This is going to be so easy. Literally, people like stress and watch watch this on TV. I mean, I got this. It's not a big deal. And so I come up on that ball, and I swung four times. And I literally physically missed that ball four times. Then in the fifth time, I got so frustrated, I cranked on that ball. And what do you think happened? It did not go straight. It went somewhere else, and it made like a beeline. These poles are, these poles, these, these clubs, <laughs> pole. Uh, this club is designed to make the ball go up, and, you know, it didn't. It went like straight. And so, you know, I teed up, I came up, I came up to hit it. Now I'm going to hit this. I'm not a monster, it's not a real ball, so if this hits you, but to illustrate just how bad, my goal would be to get it in the media booth up there. Everybody turn and wave. All right, here it comes. Are you ready? Yeah, you don't, you don't act confident in my abilities, but there it goes. I don't know who it hit, but it sure didn't go up there. It didn't go up there. Okay, so all of that to say this. I learned something that day. Jack Nicklaus, professional golfer, uh, quite a historic figure, He was once asked, what is an amateur golfer's biggest mistake? And so he had one word, overconfidence. I was way overconfident in my ability to be a golfer. In fact, in 18 long holes. Now listen, some of you are thinking, oh, Pastor Rich Golfs, I need to call him up, see if he wants. Listen, unless you literally have an entire day to dedicate and throw away, 
We were there forever, forever. By the third hole, I was like, as soon as we lap back around, do we just quit? I mean, is that, that's kind of where we stop and decide whether it's worth going on, right? 18 long holes. And I can guarantee you, the only shot that hit the target was the first one. That was it. None of the others went where they were supposed to. Uh, some were too far, some were too short, too left, too right, several of them too wet, okay? So that's just how my golf game went. Now, none of us would admit it, but in a lot of areas of our lives, we're a little overconfident, a little overconfident. Um, listen, 50% of the injuries I have in my body right now come from this idea that I could do something that my body is no longer able to do, okay? Some of you can relate to that. You know, Rich, you should go play football. That's a bad idea right now, a really bad idea. But I could do that, I'm tough. No, then you pay the price, right? We're a little overconfident. If you need proof that there's an epidemic of overconfidence, go to YouTube, type into YouTube, YouTube, American Idol, bad auditions. <laughs> There's an epidemic of overconfidence. Some of those auditions go viral and it's not because they're good, okay? You see people who literally are saturated. It's like God was giving out overconfidence and just don't, he like spilled the bag on that person, but they shouldn't have gotten it, okay? Because they, they do this thing. Have you ever been embarrassed for somebody? It's icky. It doesn't feel right, okay? There's overconfidence, now, normally, overconfidence is not a huge problem, right? It's embarrassing, maybe, or we get exposed a little bit that we've been a little overconfident in certain areas, but uh, it is a problem. When it comes to our spiritual gauge, when how we view ourselves spiritually is a little bit skewed, this I got this spirituality, the idea that we, we just kind of look at where we are spiritually in a relationship to God, and we're like, I got this, I got this. It's actually something else. It's called moralism. Moralism. And today we're talking about saving grace. We're in this series, this journey of grace, where we're taking a look at different aspects of the grace of God in our lives at different times and how it works in our lives. And today we talk about saving grace. Saving grace. Saving grace is actually the opposite of moralism. The opposite of saving grace isn't no grace. It's moralism. It's this idea that when it comes to God, we have, we have an in with God somehow because we've done more good things than we've done bad things in our lives. That sound about right? I mean, that, that's kind of how moralism works. We hit the ball straight more often than we don't. So we work at it, we work at it, and pretty soon our game gets a little bit better, and we hit the ball where it's supposed to go 51% of the time. So now we're in God's favor. We're in in life and with God. Now, I don't know anybody that walks around calling themselves a saint. Calling yourself a saint is kind of tacky, right? Uh, but you know, you know, compared to those other people, you're doing pretty good, aren't you? Those other people are, are dirty. Those other people don't get it. But you, you get it, don't you? You get it. At least my shots go down the fairway a bit. I mean, if you see where they hit the ball, those people, you see where they hit the ball? Yeah, I may hit one in the weeds every once in a while, but man, did you see how Carl played last week? Did you see that shot that he took? Oh my word, what was he thinking? What was he thinking? I'm glad I don't play like that. I'm glad I don't swing like that. See, moralism sees itself through the eyes of a scale. You see it on the screen there. If I make more good shots than bad ones, it skips the, ta the, the, the scale in my favor. But listen very closely. It really skips, spits, uh, tilts the scale in my favor, particularly when you consider who's on the other side of the scale. Who's on the other side of the scale? So in 2004, there's an organization, a Gallup organization. They did a poll of North Americans. North Americans were asked, how many of you believe in heaven? 77% of people who live in North America believe in heaven, okay? But then there was a sub-question to that. So if you believe in heaven, how many of your friends and family do you think are going to make it to heaven? 
So of the 77% of people in the United States that believe in heaven, only 60% of them think some of their friends and family will make it. Now, I share that with you for a reason, for a reason. That reveals this very insidious aspect of moralism, and it's this. In order for the scale to tip in your favor, somebody's got to be worse than you. It automatically puts people on the other scale because at the root of moralism is I've got to be better than somebody else. I've got to be more qualified for God's goodness in my life, God's blessing in my life than somebody else. I want you to think for a second. Our entire world, our entire news cycle right now is built on dismissing and vilifying who? The other side. I mean, as long as you can dig up another dirt, as long as you can use the best headlines, as long as you can damage the image of the other side enough, what does it do? It increases your asset value. Your value increases as long as you can villainize and dehumanize the other. That's the pattern of this world. That's how this world operates. To tip a moral scale in your favor, we point out the faults of the others to elevate ourselves. If I'm more on the good side in comparison to the others, it'll be weighted in my favor. I got this. I got this. And the problem with that mentality, the problem with that is the passage that, that the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2.8. It says this, For it is by grace you've been saved. Not this scale, not this idea that you've done more good than bad. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from you. It doesn't come from you. It comes from God. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. God's clear. We are not saved by our efforts, particularly in comparison with other people. We're saved by grace, and grace comes from something outside of us. It comes from God, Jesus Christ, which leads to a question. Why? Why do we need grace? Why do we need this? The very simple pastor answer to that is sin. We need grace. We need God's saving grace because of sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, all of us have sinned, and we fall short. It doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go in the right direction. We all fall short of the glory of God. We don't shoot a perfect game. Okay. Now, I know sin, sin. Not a popular topic, you would think, right? So talk about sin and people aren't going to come to work, come to work, come to church, Pastor Rich. Talk about sin and people are going to feel judged if you talk about sin. Mm, maybe, maybe. Uh, I was on the south side uh, of Chicago this last Tuesday. Tuesdays are the day that I kind of set aside to work on my messages and, and plan. And so I had to go to the south side because I was dropping my in-laws off at the airport at Midway. And so I just looked up a coffee shop, so I did, and I found a coffee shop just outside of Chinatown. So I went and kind of camped in that coffee shop and was working on my sermon. And uh, as I was sitting in that coffee shop, I, I, was, I was kind of at a counter, but the counter was at the window, and I was sitting on a bar stool, and I looked directly out the window in front of me as I was watching people pass by and stuff, and there was a bike rack right out front, and there was a sticker on it. And this, I took a picture of it. So there's me on the left working, but there's the sticker. And the sticker says, The Book of Sin, Funny, on Amazon, by a guy named Wolf Larson. It is not a Christian book. I looked it up for you. <laughs> it's not a Christian book. However, clearly sin is not a topic people won't talk about or read about or even joke about. So if the rest of the world is talking about it, why wouldn't we? It's been my experience, my experience, that the people that struggle most with the topic of sin aren't those others out there, but it's those convicted in here who when we begin to talk about sin, it might reveal that there might be an area or two in our lives that God still needs to do some work in. And so we get very, very nervous when we talk about sin. So, if the rest of the world is talking about it, we should too. So can I give you a rundown? First of all, sin is rebellion. 
It's rebellion. You know that something is wrong, and you choose to do the opposite. That's pretty simple, right? I mean, that's, that's super basic. Sin is rebellion. First John 3, 4 says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. That's what John says. Sin is lawlessness. So what that means is, it's not just the act of doing something wrong, but there's something in us that causes us to want to do the wrong thing. It's this lawless kind of nature that we have. For, for example, it's one thing for you to go over the speed limit because you didn't know there was a speed limit. You, you were ignorant of the fact you missed the sign, and so you didn't know, okay? Are you breaking the law? Yes, but you're kind of ignorant of that. So it's not rebellion. Rebellion is, why is everybody trying to control me? I'll go however fast I want. This is my life. I'll do what I want. That's rebellion. That's rebellion. How many of you parents have ever had a kid, a little kid, get in your face and scream no? That is an issue of the created misunderstanding their relationship to the creator, right? There's a disconnect there, right? Okay, that's rebellion. In our individualistic Western society, I mean, you would think we'd grow out of that phase at some point, but we love our self-sovereignty. We really do. I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my own soul, the captain of my own destiny. I call my shots. My truth is my truth. Okay? So in our individualistic Western society, what we don't realize is that that self-sovereignty that we so desperately cling to, that desire to be our own God, it actually leads to something else. It leads to something else. Slavery. In the passage I read earlier, what seems like this, with the prodigal son, this innocent request of a son from a father is actually a model of this. Uh, in, in an act of rebellion, the son asks for his inheritance. Now, when do you usually get an inheritance? After someone dies. He's literally going to his father, and this is the message. You're kind of dead to me. So you were going to give me something anyway? Why don't you just give it to me now? Because I don't necessarily want to live under your authority anymore. I'm going to do my own thing, and for the most part, we're done. We're done. So give me the inheritance now as though you are dead. That's the message. That's harsh, isn't it? That's harsh. That's the model of rebellion. That leads to slavery, and, and I don't use that term lightly. The longer I live, the more I see how my own personal actions and even some of my inactions just reveal what it is that I worship, what I give myself to. My rebellion speaks to what I choose to serve and choose to worship, myself or God. It's what it speaks to. We give our hearts to something. You will serve someone or something. God or the passions and the desires that we want. And when we choose the latter, what happens is it enslaves us. We have to support the system that our choices dictate in order to continue the process. Sin is fun, isn't it? Sin feels good. If it didn't, why would we even have this conversation? This wouldn't even be a conversation. It's why we chase after certain things. We wouldn't be having this conversation. Pastor Rich, man, way to be a buzzkill. Man, this is why I don't want to be here. Listen, I just know too many people, uh, people that I have desperately loved. It's to a point where I feel like I could finish the script when you start seeing it be written. Uh, plus, I know myself well enough. I'm 47 years old. I've been walking with Jesus since 1992. That walk has not been perfect. There's growth that has happened. I also know myself well from before I walked with Jesus. I just know and I see the cycle. I see the cycle. And there's certain things that we give ourselves to that begin to have ownership over us. They begin to dictate the relationships we have and the relationships we don't have, because if we did have those relationships, they might find something out about us. I didn't do this in the first service, but you know what? Here we go. I want to talk to you about alcohol. Oh, man, Rich. You were going to talk about sin. Now you're talking about alcohol. Now you're really blowing it. 
I'm not anti-alcohol. I'm, I'm a part of the Church of the Nazarene. We kind of take a stand that abstinence is a good idea, okay? Uh, I don't drink, and I would absolutely love to stand here and tell you that the reason I don't drink is because I'm a member of the Church of the Nazarene and a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene. I don't like being told what I can and can't do, so that's not the reason. I don't drink because I know if I started, I wouldn't stop. That's the first reason. I got way too much to lose. And I know that I know that I know myself well enough to know that if I started, it wouldn't stop. Ask my wife. She knows me. If I started, I wouldn't stop. And there'd be a whole lot of things in the wake. Does that mean you shouldn't have a glass of wine? I mean, that, this is a whole different conversation, okay? But I'm using it as an illustration and an understanding that you become enslaved to things. And they begin to dictate. The other reason I don't drink is because, again, I know way too many people that struggle with it. I know way too many people who've tried to jump off the bandwagon and jump back on and whose lives are falling apart because of addiction to substance. I want to be able to come alongside of those people in solidarity and say, I'm going to walk with you in the midst of that struggle, and I want to help you. I want to help you. Now, I want to make sure that you understand what I'm saying, and I don't want you to hear what I'm not, okay? My job here is not to condemn or anything like that, but I feel like right now might be as good of a time as any just to let you know that when it comes to one of those issues, we all have these things in our lives where we realize, if I give in to this temptation, if I say yes to this thing, if I go this direction because it feels good, it smells good, it tastes good, it looks good, it's all of these different good things, and then all of a sudden we tell ourselves it is good. And the downside is all of a sudden then it leads to what I think is the most damaging aspect of sin, which is estrangement. Broken relationships with God, and with others. Okay, do not raise your hand when I ask this question. How many of you right now know someone who will not take a phone call from you? If you called and you left a voicemail, they probably would not return your call. That's estrangement. That's separation. Somebody who was once a part of your life, but today you're dead to them. Or maybe they're essentially dead to you and you would never make that call. Never make that call. Separated. Something broke, didn't it? Something broke. That goes back to the garden. It goes back to Adam and Eve. They rebelled and their immediate reaction was to hide. God was trying to maintain them, their innocence and their purity and their holiness don't, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They only had the knowledge of good. They only had the knowledge of God. But don't, don't, don't choose that path. They chose it. Their eyes became open. They saw each other as naked, and they covered themselves, and then they hid from each other, and they hid from God, from God. Isn't that why we don't tell people our deepest, darkest secrets? Because if we did... They might look at us different. We might feel judged. The relationship would change, wouldn't it? There'd be estrangement. So we keep our mouths quiet. Sin brings fear. It brings guilt, shame, alienation, condemnation. It makes enemies out of friends. The prodigal son knew all of this, and he experienced all of it exponentially. His decisions broke his relationship with the one person, the one person who loved him enough to let him go. And now he was faced with the reality that he fell short. He had swung, I swung, but now I am so far out of play that there is no hope for me. I can't recover in this game except for one thing, the saving grace of God. The saving grace of God. That golf analogy fortunately for you, breaks down at this point. <laughs> I have to keep reminding you of how not good I am at it. Uh, I suppose I could practice and get better, I think. We'll see. Uh, you know, maybe I've hit some balls in the woods. I'll do better next time, pull myself out of this. I'm going to clean up my game. I'm going to clean up my game, going to take another shot and move forward. 
And you and I might clean it up some. We might clean up our game some. Show up at church a little more often, give consistently, serve, you know, do all that kind of different stuff. But, but in the end, there's something in us that knows. There's something in us that knows that we are not always going to hit a hole in one. All of our shots do not always go straight, do they? All of our swings don't end up in the direction we want them to go. As Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, all of us, and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous, not one. We always ask for more than we give. We rebel. And maybe it isn't too obvious. I mean, you're sitting here and maybe you're thinking, man, this is pretty heavy, Pastor Rich. I'm not that bad. Okay, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not that, I'm not bad like some other people. Maybe it's not as obvious as it is with the prodigal son, but in a very real way. Our overconfidence confronts God and sets us up in the nature of our relationship to say we position ourselves first instead of you. Now listen, soon what happens is we realize we become enslaved to our rebellion. We have to nurture and foster the decision that we made and the relationships that lay in the wake are many. Or at the very least, they're not what they should be or could be. And this, this is where we see the amazing grace of God. It's amazing. Luke 15, 17, this is what, this is a great verse. When he came to his senses, so it says, when he came to his senses in the majesty of God's goodness, grace had deposited some kind of a memory in his mind. Last week, we talked about God goes first. God is prevenient. He seeks us. He searches us out. And God deposits this grace in our lives, leading us home. And all of a sudden, there was a memory that God had placed in his mind. And it was a memory of just how good his father was. He was a good, good father. And he remembered that, and then he he came up with a plan. He hatched a plan. Ask for mercy and earn my father's good graces. In other words, I'm going to go home, erect a scale, and see if somehow in the realm of all of this, I can start tipping it back into my favor. Earn his favor. You heard the passage, indescribably, he received instead grace. He didn't do anything. He literally just walked in the door. And the father wrapped his arms around him, said, welcome home, we're throwing you a party. That is, it's nonsense. It does not make sense. It is the irrational, amazing grace of God that would grab somebody and rescue them out of that. It's a good story. It's a really good story. So as Jesus was telling that story, he knew something. There was another group of people that were listening to him talk. And it was a group of these religious elite people. These very, very spiritual, very, very deep, very, very committed, loyal, religious people were listening to Jesus share this story, as well as the riffraff and the lepers and the women and the prostitutes and everybody else who were listening, here was this really, really religious group that was listening to Jesus tell this story. Man, it's a good thing Jesus was not talking about them, isn't it? How awesome is it that God's not talking? He's not talking about us. I mean, compared to the other people listening to Jesus right now, man, the scales are tipped in our favor. We're doing pretty good, guys. We're doing all right. It's, it's something for these people over here. And in a stroke of absolute brilliance, Jesus looks at the crowd and he writes everybody into the story. All of a sudden, he writes them into the story. So there's this celebration going on. There's a party in the house, okay? The, the band is jumping. Everything's moving. Everybody's eating. It's, it's a blast. This son who was lost has come home and the dad has literally cast off all restraint we are going to party. So they are partying. And then you have the older son. He's out in the field and does not know what's going on. He comes home, he sees that there's a party going on in his house. He doesn't understand what's going on, so the servant, he asks the servant, hey man, 
there's a party in my house. I wasn't invited. What's going on? And he says, oh, man, your brother. Your brother came home, and your dad is throwing him a party. What happens is the father, who had gone out that same door to go find his lost son, the prodigal, had to come outside again to find another lost son that Jesus had written into the story. On the surface, the older son does not look lost because what he's doing is right. It's all right. He does all the right things. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. So, man, that scale is really tipped in my favor. That scale is moved in my favor. I've listened to you. I've obeyed you. In fact, when he was out there roaming around, I was the one out in the fields. I was the one keeping the business going. I was the one doing all the right things, saying all the right things, being all the right things. I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the one. I got this. I've got this. That's who I am. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him and throw him a party. That's not fair, is it? That's not fair, is it? Wait a minute, Dad. There's a scale that has to be represented here. I've done all the right things, and yet the one who didn't do anything right is treated as an equal with me? That's not right. That's not fair. And what Jesus does in one foul sloop is he pretty much just takes the scale and throws it out the window. There is no moral scale. No moral scale. If moralism worked, this story would not be in Scripture. But it doesn't work because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what then shall we do? The video said it believe. So in an act of supreme self-giving love, God went first. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still out, while we were the others, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until we tipped the scale in our favor to say, you're good enough, so I'm going to give my life for you. That's not how that works. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no hope in that. The hope is in the fact that we are lost sinners, and even so, he still came to seek us. He still came to find us, still came to redeem us. This is saving grace. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become righteous, that that, that all of a sudden the scale doesn't matter anymore. That is saving grace. It's a grace for a lost son and even for a son who believes and still is lost. He believes he's already home. There's no good enough. There's no not good enough. There's no scale. There's literally just Jesus. There's just Jesus. So in an act of saving grace, Jesus dies our death to forgive us of the sin that leads to death. Our rebellion is erased, our estrangement's gone, the chains of slavery are broken, there's no more guilt, there's no more shame, there's no more fear. Amen. Instead, what you have is Ephesians 2, 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. From death to life, from slavery to freedom, condemnation to acceptance, from lost to home, to home. Not because of anything that we've done. This is amazing to me. It's not because of who you are. It doesn't matter what family you grew up in. It didn't matter if you went to church or not. It doesn't matter if you went through First Communion or Confirmation. It doesn't, it doesn't matter any of that. No matter who you are, it's not good enough, and it's not not good enough. It's because of who he is. It's who he is. And I pray that you know his saving grace today. I do. It's the most amazing, freeing, nonsensical, makes no sense that God would love such a sinner as I and even so still die for me to give me freedom and grace. The prodigal son found this out. 
that. And I, I hope you would take time to think about this. Uh, sometimes we open up an altar and different things, but today I want to do something a little bit different. You, know, you always have those connect cards in the back of those seats, or um, there's ways you can send messages through Facebook. There's all kinds of different things. Mark a card, send a message, do something that says, hey, Rich, I want to talk. And maybe you're realizing, I want to talk a little bit more about this. I don't really feel comfortable in a big setting like this, but maybe you want to have a conversation. I want to know and understand what it means for me to accept this grace, this saving grace that Jesus Christ offers. I want to encourage you to take advantage of that and do that. The prodigal son found it. This saving grace is amazing. Um, it's so amazing. And yet, wouldn't it be a shame to walk across that line of belief and accept that, that grace and accept that forgiveness of sin in our lives and the, and the price that was paid to give it to us. Think about that. Wouldn't it be a shame then to wake up tomorrow and live and act and make choices in such a way that that grace never happened? We've been called to something more now, haven't we? Do you accept this great grace of Jesus? It's not just to save you. It's to start you on this amazing journey of what it means to walk in the footsteps of the Spirit of God. And it's this amazing, refining thing. I hope you come back next week. I've got a friend. His name is Dr. Jeff Stark. He's a, he's a professor. He's an author. He's an urban missionary in Chicago. He's going to be here. He's going to share with us about, about grace that not just saves us, but then grace that changes our heart from the inside out that begins to change our affections, that begins to enable us to walk in step with the Holy Spirit and not waste grace. And not waste the grace that God has given us, but allow it truly to transform our lives. I hope you're here next Sunday. He's so good. I'm a little nervous because if he stands up here and starts talking, you're gonna be like, we gave Rich a card last week, but we kinda like this guy. Uh, He's a great guy. You need to be here. He's an amazing speaker, but the message is even better. And uh, I want to encourage you to be here for that. He'll be sharing how not to waste this amazing grace that God pours out for us. In the meantime, I'm going to ask you to stand. As we close, let me pray for you, Father. Uh, we just come before you today and... man. Father, I always feel like these are more heavy-handed than I intend them to be. And um, Father, if there's anything that I've said that, that didn't agree with you, I apologize. I ask for forgiveness. But uh, Father, you want to work in our hearts so desperately. So I pray that you begin a good thing in all of our hearts today. And you promise in Scripture that whatever good thing you begin in us, you'll see to completion. So help us to participate with that completion. Help us, Father to open our hearts and our lives and our minds and our, our eyes to you so we might see you at work in our lives. Father, I also know that there are incredible burdens that walk through this door today. There are people in this room right now, people participating online and engaging online that are carrying huge weights in their lives. I pray that you would alleviate some of that pressure. I pray that you would give them a sufficient grace to meet them in their time of need. And Father, help them to know that you're with them, you never leave them, you never forsake them, but you're close. You're a good Father. It's who you are. And so, Father, we come before you today and thank you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Hey, God bless you. Thank you for being here today. Find a few people, give them a good look, tell them they're good looking, and uh, you're glad to see them today. Thanks. in here.